to be landed in uh, Zechariah in just a minute, but we'll read a little bit of the gospel reading as well. But this, of course, is the day that traditionally, if, we, if you follow the Christian ca calendar, which is a calendar that has been put together over centuries in order to help uh, disciples of Christ be, ori be reoriented around the story of Jesus every single year, and, and the, the history of the church calendar is fascinating. It is the predominant way that people have been discipled throughout the history of the Christian church. Predominant way has not been through podcasts or even reading books and things like that because we have to remember it's actually the shorter amount of time that we had uh, wide-scale believers who were literate. For the vast majority of the history of our faith, that has not been the case. So one of the things that, that the church did was, number one, they created sanctuaries with stained glass that you could come in and you could be discipled back to the story of Jesus simply by looking at the progression of the stained glass. Then as time went on, we came up with what we call the Stations of the Cross. So every time during Easter, you are re-discipled into the story of the, of the love and the suffering of our Lord as you go through the Stations of the Cross. The other thing the church did was create a rhythmic calendar in which we rehearsed the story from Advent to Resurrection to Pentecost to um, the first six months of the, of the year is basically telling the story of Christ. The last six months of the year is what is known as ordinary time. So, with that little historical backdrop, this is traditionally the day uh, called Palm Sunday, and this is the day where we commemorate the part of the Gospels in which Jesus does his triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. And, and during this time, this is traditionally when we start off what we call as Holy Week, <clears throat> which is the week leading up to Good Friday, which is when Jesus was crucified. So, this Sunday starts... Holy Week, and we started with observing Palm Sunday, the Sunday of the triumphal entry, and of course, does anyone know why it's called Palm Sunday? There we go. Oh, we're even getting further now, back toward the back. Yes, Palm Sunday, if you were in a more liturgical church, you probably had Sundays where you weighed palm branches. And so, um, who knows, maybe we'll return to that. We, we didn't get to it this year. But, um, so, so it's, it's because as they came, you know, they laid down their coats and they waved palm branches and they celebrated the coming of the Lord. And we're going to look in just a moment what that's all about. That's what this day is. That's Palm Sunday. That's the triumphal entry. What we want to do is think and reflect upon the Palm Sunday as his story and their story so that we can gain insights to what it means for our story and my story. 
And, and this is where it's very important. Palm Sunday celebrates a very specific manifestation of the, of the intended mission of the coming of the Son of God. And it's very, very important because this is a significant aspect of the coming of the Son of God. It is a significant aspect of what it's supposed to look like visibly when God's kingdom begins to grow and to manifest itself all over the face of the earth. And it is the one aspect of the Jesus mission that many of us tend to struggle with because... It is the aspect of Jesus' mission in which Yahweh makes a very clear declaration that the heart of God for his creation is that we never inflict violence upon one another. It is one of the most significant values that we see emanating from the heart of God, both in the Old Testament and embodied in the life of Jesus. And this particular Sunday is going to emphasize that reality. And we tend to undercommunicate it. And I'm not going to go too nerdy and off the rails here because I'm hoping maybe to get fried catfish for lunch today. But we have to say, and we, and we have to take a moment to pause and to reflect and to highlight one of the things that robs us from the joy of Palm Sunday, the prophecy in Zechariah, and this aspect of the Canaan kingdom of God is the move of nationalism. Nationalism happens as it seems to be simply an emphasis on patriotism, which I have no reason to condemn. I am very grateful for the time and the country and the place and the people and the family in which I have been born. But what happens when Christians replace devotion to Jesus with nationalism is their greater devotion is from their ethnicity or their country of origin. And what happens is we think that God calls us to promote the kingdom of our nationality even above the kingdom of God. When that happens, once nationalism takes place, it's very easy to justify the utilization of violence as though that was an actual manifestation of fidelity to Jesus. When in reality, one of the enormous themes of the people of God, and when we know that this world is moving in the direction God intends, is when the people of God and the sons and daughters of God are known as being peacemakers because we understand the heart of God. Now, that's a lot. There's a burden on me now that I've let out with that. Well, let's go back to the Scripture because, again, what my heart and desire is, not that this afternoon you're sitting around the table potentially talking about, what do you think about what Artie said? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Should we call for his resignation? Should we give him a... a, um, a, 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 a um, no, a bonus, that would be fine. I was actually thinking a subscription to a Cigar of the Month Club, but nonetheless, a, a Reuben, that's right, that's right. Uh, what, what I'm hoping happens is not that. What I'm hoping happens if you feel inspired or if you feel challenged or you feel uh, uh, a desire to offer some pushback, that that conversation happens not around what already said, but around what the scriptures said. I don't have a lot of confidence in my intelligence either. But what I do hope is what we're discussing is how we're reading the scripture. Because that, if I'm just being kooky and making up ideas, you are right to ignore that. 
If I am communicating what the Scripture is communicating, then it's important for us to enter into a dialogue with the Scripture so that we can understand the heart of God. So, the triumphal entry, it's, it's in all the synoptic Gospels. We'll look at where um, Luke records it and where Matthew records it. Now, both in Luke and Matthew, part of what they are doing is they are, they are quoting in part from Zechariah 9. So this event is rooted in the prophetic vision of Zechariah 9. Um, Luke and Matthew know this. Um, Jesus certainly knew this, which was why he was so meticulous in the way he pre-planned for this event, even securing the donkey the day before. The apostles knew this, and as we see from the crowd, as they react with Hosanna, son of David, save us, and they wave their palm branches, why are they doing that? Because the Christian year hasn't been invented yet. They don't know yet that we like to wave branches on this Sunday. No, they did that because they recognize now is the time. It's happening. Do you remember what Zechariah said? Look, here he comes, and he's coming in Jerusalem on a donkey. This is what Zechariah was talking about. That is why they erupt in enthusiasm and this spontaneous expression of praise. Now, that's their story. We don't always understand that context, so let's take a second to enter into it. So what Luke says in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, this isn't verbatim, but does that phraseology remind you of another event that happened prior to this event that we find in the Gospels, around in the early parts of the Gospels? What did they say? Peace in heaven and peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. What's that, what's that phrase remind you of? The announcement of the angels when they appear before the shepherds. This is similar to what they say. You know, blessings on those to whom God has goodwill, peace on earth. Well, that dialogue happens in that announcement of the birth of Christ to the shepherds on the lips of the angels. And here we have the similar sentiment coming from the people as they spontaneously respond to this symbolic prophetic gesture that Jesus has um, engaged in. Matthew 21, 9. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, let's, let's break this down and let's look at this for a second. First of all, the word Hosanna. If you were an evangelical, then the term Hosanna is a very, very Christian term. And if you grew up in, Hosea, in evangelicalism and you listen to worship music from the vineyard, but even the, the, before there was vineyard, there was Hosanna Integrity. Before there was Hosanna Integrity, there was, anybody know your evangelical history? Oh, you all did not pass. There was Maranatha music. They actually was kind of the first group that began to popularize a more contemporary expression of worship. 
Um, and then from that, there was Hosanna Integrity. But I first learned the term Hosanna from singing songs from Mar Maranatha Worship Ministry because they had a lot of songs with that term. So I just always thought of it as something that kind of means praise the Lord or worship the Lord. Very, very sanitized word, very religious word, very much a word that was informed by my upbringing evangelicalism as to the meaning of it. And so even when I discovered that it didn't mean uh, praise the Lord, it actually means something more along the line of save us, what I just immediately assumed as an informed evangelical was that saving they were talking of us about was, Lord, save us from hell in the afterlife so that we can go to heaven like angels when we die. Because that's what I taught was, I was I, that I caught was the primary message of the gospel. However, once again, that is not the origins of that term. Remember, the Bible wasn't written by evangelicals for evangelicals. That's not what the scriptures are for. And so when we look at this term, it actually is not really a religious uh, term at all. It actually simply means, oh, save now, or please save. So originally, it was a cry for help which really is really the, one of the most powerful motivations for even, even seeking the spiritual life is a recognition that you need something more, which then puts you in the position of attitude that you're willing to surrender and to submit to the Lord. So, so this is a very powerful word, and it has spiritual implications. Lord, save us. But when they say this word, they mean something very specific. It's a cry for help. It is not a spiritual term. In other words, the context of this idea is not save us, from hell in the afterlife, but rather save us from the oppression of foreign rule. Or more specifically in this context, save us from the Romans. But one of the things they're picking up on is as the people of God, it is not God's intent for other, another nation to inflict violence and oppression upon us in order to control us. That's not in the heart of God. Now, unfortunately, they were yet to understand that that's not the heart of God for any nation, but they're going to get there eventually. But they recognize this, and so this is not a save us from hell. This is Lord save us from the violent oppression that we are experiencing and restore us once again to our native land so that we can once again be a nation unto your glory and we promise this time we won't mess it up I understand that prayer I prayed that a lot myself Lord if you'll just get me out of this one more time okay my deepest intimacy with the Lord usually begins with God Jen's gonna be so mad I need your inner. Now, those are revival prayers that I pray there, <laughs> right? And so, um, so as they're praying this, this is what this term means. In other, in, in, in other words, this is the climax of Jesus' mission to announce the arrival of the kingdom, the government of God, the rule of the Almighty. This is not a random event. Jesus has prearranged the use of this colt or this donkey. And why has Jesus been so calculated with this detail? This part's very important. We didn't go into it because we've gone into it in the past, but I'm sure you're familiar with the story, right, the day before where he says, hey, go to this house, say, I'm going to take this donkey. And when the guy says, what do you mean you're going to take my donkey? You're to say the Lord has need of it. You guys remember that story? And then they take the donkey. What, what's important about that detail is it seems as though Jesus has made these prearrangements even with the owner of the donkey. That's why the code phrase is the Lord has need of it. 
In other words, this was not a spontaneous event that just so happened to coincide with an ancient prophecy in Zechariah 9. No, no, no. Jesus is familiar with this. He meticulously prearranges to make sure everything's set so that the details are executed precisely. And so he has this set up very, very specifically. And he's very calculated with the detail. Why? In order to highlight the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the arrival of Israel's king. Jesus is making a dramatic prophetic statement when he engages with this action. This is not about Jesus and Christians. It is about Yahweh and Israel. Now, it eventually has implication for Jesus and Christians. I'm not saying that. But remember, what we're saying is, in order to understand the implications for our story and my story, I have to first appreciate contextually what it meant for his story and for their story. This act is not about Jesus and Christians. This act is very clearly about Yahweh and Israel, as we're going to see in Zechariah 9. However, having said that, when Yahweh returns, he will establish a new covenant that will be an inclusive reality for all people. So it certainly has implications for our story. But initially, it is about their story. So with that in mind, let us look at Zechariah 9. For time's sake, we're going to look at two verses. But if you want to find some interesting stout tobacco for your theological pipe to smoke this afternoon, go and spend time reading the totality of Zechariah 9. It's really fascinating to see what God, the vision of God is ultimately in the sending of Jesus. But for now, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. And I apologize for those of you who are praying for the God to deliver you from uh, the demon of nicotine for making two tobacco references within 20 minutes, but whatever. Um, here we are, Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river the ends of the earth. This means that the mission of the gospel terminates with the proclamation of peace. That is what God is up to. Now let's take a moment and look at this. Look at the imagery that is used when he says he's going to cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. I know that those are terms that we're used to reading as we go through the Old Testament and read through the Psalms and we just kind of blast by them. But actually, these terms create a symbolic 
explanation of the difference between a religion organized for the purpose of control and the vision of the dream of God that he has for his creation and for the world. And it is symbolized in this chariot and in these war horses. So one of the ways that you might hear this phrase referred to if you've read through the Psalms is some trust in chariots, but I will put my boast in the Lord. I'm paraphrasing, but you guys are probably familiar with that phraseology. What does that mean? Does it mean that you're not being faithful to Yahweh if you have a chariot? Probably not. It's that chariots symbolized military advancement. It was the evolution of military technology. It was the evolution of technology intended for violence and oppression. And therefore, the larger your chariots, the, the larger your number of chariots, the more likely it would that you were going to conquer in battle. The same is true of the war horse. If the people are coming in with, um, with an army and artillery on horseback, they are going to have dominance over another army that has few to zero horses. Unless, of course, they've seen Braveheart, but we can discuss that some other time. And, you know, the long poles and the... Uh, anyway. Um, but in general, that's the truth. So what this symbolizes is the temptation that man has to yield to controlling their life through the use of force and violence in the oppression of other people so that they can be protected. Now, what time is it? 10.56, the catfish is already being breaded, so I've got to use my time wisely. But this is really significant because if you will go back into reading Genesis, what we find is this. The story that happens immediately after the fall is not one of sexual perversion. It is not one of unbridled greed, although it is connected to envy. But the first sin that is highlighted that begins a narrative that culminates with God's first massive act of judgment, I think in Genesis 6, is that where the flood is? Someone can nod, affirm me or deny me if you want. But that's all right. That's fine. Stay off your phones. Round six or so, it, um, it culminates. I think six is the judgment of the flood, and then chapter 11 is the judgment of Babylon. I think that those are the two big judgment narratives in the first part of Genesis. But what happens is Genesis chapter 4 begins, the, it plants the seed for the judgment that comes to fruition in Genesis chapter 6. Because... Seven, sorry, in chapter seven. Thank you, the scholar team. On for, this is my research team up here. So, so in Genesis chapter seven, it starts with Genesis chapter four. And what is the first manifestation after the curse of the fall? What's the first sin that's committed? Well, first, it is envy, but that envy motivates a particular action. Anybody remember what that action is? Murder. It is violence. That is the only God that man can trust if they do not trust the Prince of Peace. Is in somehow, whether they're religious or irreligious, they have to rely on force and violence for their security. Those are the only two options. And Cain chooses the way of violence. And what does the Spirit of God say when he comes to him? He says, Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. 
And once again, Cain receives a double act of judgment and mercy. He is given some symbolic mark that says he is guilty, but that, the, but that his judgment belongs to God alone, and no one is supposed to take uh, Cain's life into their own hands. You guys remember this story. And then pretty soon, his ancestor, uh, Abimelech, says, well, look, you know, um, I say double the protection that was on Cain because I also killed a man. So then you get to the flood story in chapter 7, and what do we see? Why does God act in judgment? In order to curb the violence of man. So see, this theme is from the very beginning, and it shoots all the way through. And the problem is, as evangelicals, we tend to spiritualize it so that we don't have to confront the, the, the uh, challenge of really facing what God's heart says about war and violence and so forth. But this is all through there, and this verse, Zechariah, culminates in this, because what he says is God's heart for his people is that they do not need the chariot nor the war horse. You ever seen towns in Europe? You ever gone on a European vacation? I have not, but I've been to Tishomingo, so I know what it's like to visit historical places. But oftentimes in those, in those towns, particularly in the town squares, there is typically a statue of the founder in the middle, but the founder is just not standing. Anybody know what the vast majorities of those statues are? The founder on a horse of war. Almost, I mean, it is, it is ubiquitous throughout some of those ancient towns in Europe. Why? It's the symbolism that this man came on his war horse and used violence to conquer and to establish a settlement or a township or whatever. But, but this is the way of the world. It's a dude on a horse. That's the way the world works. Now, we've changed the horses and chariots for takes and... and um, Drones, thank you. Uh, tanks and drones, but it's the same principle. And what I want us to see is, my friends, there is a calling on the people of God that isn't about the afterlife. It's about the way we contribute to a more just and liberated world that is delivered from the use of force and violence and oppression. That's where you see the kingdom of God being made manifest. That is what sets the stage for us to be able to bear witness to the gospel by inviting people into a superior story because you can see the fruit of it. It's reconciliation, it's peace, it's kindness, it's gentleness. It is not force, it is not violence, it is not war. And this is a freebie, by the way. This is why I think that we should exercise extreme caution when we use war metaphor in the church. I understand that historically that war metaphor was utilized for the disciples' battle against the temptations of sin, but it has since broadened, and now we use war metaphor to talk about our relationship to the world. And I'm saying based on Matthew and Zechariah, when I do that, I am being antichrist because War metaphor in, in describing our relationship to the world is sinful, and it is an idolatrous denial of the clear message of the Scripture. It's not just an option. Well, you're into violence, and I'm not. No. If you're into Jesus, 
You're into giving yourself over to the process of allowing the Holy Spirit to eradicate violence and, and, and vengeance from your heart so that you can then embody the heart of God. So when the king comes, his purpose is to cut off that chariot, to cut off the warhouse, warhorse, and to cut off the battle bow. When he comes on the foal of the donkey, he's coming to speak peace to the nation. He does this in part as he speaks forgiveness from the cross, but this is not a physical kingdom in Israel. This is a kingdom whose sovereignty reaches to the ends of the earth. The disciples clearly pick up on this act, this prophetic act that Jesus is engaging in, and they immediately and spontaneously begin to celebrate, and not just any expression of celebration, but specifically the way Israel would celebrate the arrival of royalty. They are singing part of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, quoted in Luke 19.38, was used as a hymn of royal entry in an annual ritual of reenthronement. Psalm um, 118 was used as a hymn of royal entry in an annual ritual of the reenthronement of the king. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the king who comes to bring the peace of heaven upon the earth. What, what's happening here is familiar. You know, I, I think that as technology has increased, most of us kind of take some time to pause on election, on, on um, not election day, but on um, the day in which the, the, um, the inauguration day, when the president is being sworn in. Lots of pomp and circumstances, party in Washington all day long. And we, we, we you know, gather around our computers or our smartphones or our televisions to watch these events. Some of us typically are weeping during them, and some of us are high-fiving and rejoicing. That's all part of the experience. But essentially, what that day symbolizes for us as a nation is very similar to what's going on here. This is a spiritual slash political act that Jesus is engaging in when he does this. And they are also engaging not just in a spiritual but a political act when they sing this hymn of kingly reenthronement. Now think about this. We have similar celebrations. We tend to not do that at Holy Week or even on Easter, which is the Super Bowl Sunday of Christendom. But oftentimes we have our greatest celebrations for what? What holiday, Christian holiday? Christmas, yeah. And so we will sing in December at some point the lyrics, he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love and the wonders of his love, and the wonders of his love, and the wonders, wonders of his love, and the wonders, wonders of his love. That's what Jesus is doing with this triumphal entry. He is making a statement to the nations that Yahweh comes to proclaim peace. This is why they're so devastated when the trip to Jerusalem ends in Jesus' death. That is not what they were expecting. Yet it is in his death on the cross where we most clearly see the forgiving heart of God. They still hadn't understood that this king has arrived to conquer the enemies of sin and death, not the Romans. They're still rejoicing in their God of, their God of expectations, but Jesus is revealing a God whose sovereignty extends beyond 
the boundaries of human expectations and demands. That's what Jesus reveals. He has come to offer the peace of heaven on earth. This peace, however, can only be experienced and expressed if we receive Jesus' kingdom, kingdom and surrender to Jesus as our king. That's how the world changes. That's how the world is transformed. When people recognize my highest allegiance and my faithfulness is to King Jesus, and I am called to surrender and to submit to him and then allow and, and cooperate with the spirit that he gives as a gift to give me the power to move forward to be a person who represents Christ to the world and continues the work of the kingdom of God as the body of Christ on earth in my generation. That is how this whole thing is intended to work and to move on and to progress. And the way we respond is by our response to that call. So, as we contemplate Palm Sunday, here's what I am asking you to consider. If the Spirit, if the Spirit bears witness to the truth that we're celebrating, I am asking you to be willing to completely overhaul your understanding of what it means to pursue a life of faithfulness to Jesus. Now, I will encourage you and warn you, it'll be one of the best decisions that you've ever made, but it will cost you. Following Jesus is way more costly than following Christianity. That's what I've learned. I thought it was one and the same, but it's not. If I follow good evangelical Christianity, man, it's like I'm an ice cream server. Everybody loves me. But when I start submitting to Jesus and allowing Jesus not just to speak to my sin, but also to my religion, that's when I start losing friends. That's when things start to get difficult. <clears throat> but it is worth it, 100%. And so I, I, I have not made it a secret that I was profoundly altered by studying the book of Luke for three years. It, it rearranged my entire understanding of theology and spirituality, and I had to do a lot of repenting because I had been worshiping at the idol of man-created systematic theology. I have not been worshiping in awe of a God who I seek to understand but will always be well beyond my capacity to understand and to dictate how he should act and what he should be. And so it will cost you, but it will be worth it. I'm asking you to consider overhauling your understanding of what it means to pursue a life of faithfulness to Jesus. Are you living as though the world that God sovereignly rules is for you or against you? This is an incredibly fundamental question for the direction of your journey. Too many of us so-called believers live as though Jesus' victory is not complete and that we need to fight on his behalf. This, my friends, is a deception in my reading of the Scripture. Make no mistake, discipleship is a lifestyle that works to manifest Jesus' kingdom in any sphere where it is not evident. And therefore, followers of Jesus will continue his mission of working for God's justice in every domain of life. And that means that we will encounter resistance, that we will encounter difficulty. It means that people aren't always going to be open to the revelation that we are called to embody. But nonetheless, through patience and through faithfulness, we continue to speak the truth in a spirit of grace and love. 
But, so I'm not saying that it's always easy. I'm not saying that there aren't ideological battles or, or conversations to engage in because I know that those are real. What I am saying is that it's incredibly important that you realize that as believers, as followers of Jesus, we are working from victory, not for victory. We are working from victory. We are not working for victory. We are pushing back darkness, but we're pushing back darkness that has already been defeated. Therefore, we are free to live our calling as advocates of humanity, not adversaries of humanity. And this is enormous because unfortunately, we've got some bad PR out there and a lot of the outsiders believe that we view ourselves as their adversary. And the truth is, if we open confession to one another, some of us treat them that way. Some of us believe that they are. I know I certainly have, and there are places in my thinking that I still have that attitude. That's why I'm saying with the psalmist, Lord, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the path of your salvation. Because I am not called to be an adversary of humanity. I am called in the spirit of my victorious Lord who has forever secured the reconciliation of the world. I am called to advocacy. I am called to be an advocate because Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God is also our advocates. Remember, as we come to a close, that what Zacharias celebrates in chapter 9, verse 10b, is that he shall speak peace to the nations. My friends, I just can't believe that Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, came to speak peace to the nations only for his followers to speak agitation and judgment to the nations. I don't think that's it. We've missed something in the job description of what it means to be the body of Christ on earth. We are also called to speak peace to the nations. Would you be willing to entertain a new mindset for the next 30 days? And what I suggest is that you pursue, in order to pursue a renewed mind, you recognize that you have to cultivate a rhythm that empowers this renewal. So re-engage with the most fundamental practice that most of us learned, which is quiet time or devotional time or time away with the Lord. But I am shocked at how many believers have jettisoned this ancient practice. I'm not shocked. I understand because it became about legalism and it became about the obligation of reading your Bible and praying every day and there was no relational draw. I get that. But make it relational and do it again anyway because that's what it's there for. That's the gift of it. During this daily time of quiet and solitude, purposefully confess that God is the victorious source of the universe. I know this sounds silly, but after six months of forcing myself to wake up and one of the first things that I say to my, in my head or out loud is, God, thank you for this day in which you are king and you sovereignly rule. I thank you that today, I might end it frustrated, but you will never have a moment of frustration because you are victorious, you are in control, you are in heaven, you're sovereign, and you do whatever you please. 
that has allowed me to begin to recognize when I leave the door, I don't leave the door and face a world and enmity with me. I leave the world and face a universe that is saturated with the drippings of God's love because he is present everywhere and he has defeated death and sin and the enemy forever. So I don't want to get deceived into re-engaging into that narrative. So we confess that God is the victorious source of the universe. This means because God is love, that love is the foundation of all that is held together in him. The purpose of this confession is to create space for you to ask the Holy Spirit to lead you to live life as an advocate rather than an adversary. An advocate is a person who speaks or writes in support or defense of a person, cause, etc. An adversary is a person or a group or force that opposes or attacks an opponent, an enemy, or a foe. So my humble suggestion this morning as an application to your Palm Sunday sermon is this. Resolve independence on the Holy Spirit to live as an advocate for yourself and for your sister and your brother and for your neighbor and for your enemy. So as you all stand and the worship team comes forward, I am asking you to consider praying Holy Spirit, for whom are you calling me to serve as an advocate today? Now, I've used up all my time. Catfish is done now. It's been done for probably 15 minutes. So what I want to do is I want to ask the prayer team to come forward. And here's the burden on my heart this morning. We want to pray for anybody and everyone that wants prayer. But it's critically important for you to understand that when you imagine yourself before God, if God is in any way a force of resistance, your adversary, then you will never be an advocate for anyone else. The very first place that you have to discipline yourself in a spirit of advocacy is for yourself. Now, if you recognize that this is a problem for you, that you talk way more abusively to yourself than anyone else in your life does, my friends, this is an idol that you have to seek deliverance from. It's more important that you get free from this and you get free of your cussing habit or your smoking habit. You have to learn to rest in God's advocacy for you so that the narrative in your mind is one of advocacy for yourself because that's how you access the gospel transformation that will then equip you to live as an authentic advocate for others. So, if you want to go get communion and pray about this on your own, you're welcome to do so. But if you, as we reflect and worship, want to come forward and have others pray for you, we are up here and we would love to pray for you too.